Dedicated to all the simchas and all the happy and joyous occasions that are taking place in like Bahima, all the weddings, engagements, all good, beautiful and positive things that happened this week. And may we merit to the ultimate good, positive thing. Mashiach Tzidkenu. This Shabbos is Pashat Bahar B'chukesai. We read them both together. Shabbos Chazak. Which we will say at the end of B'chukesai, Chazak, Chazak, Venez Chazek. For those of us that get to a shul. Those who don't get to a shul and they want to lay in at home, privately. You still say Chazak, Chazak, Venez Chazek. At the end of your reading, today is the day after Lagba Imer, therefore, obviously, still feeling the Kedusha of Lagba Imer, the 33rd day of Imer, the day of the Holy Tana, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Someone asked a very interesting question this week. They want to know. I read together this week. Why do we not read on Monday Bahar and on Thursday Bukhukhaisai? A legitimate question. Bahar Bukhukhaisai, we don't say Parshiyos Bahar Bukhukhaisai, the Parshiyos, the portions Bahar Bukhukhaisai, rather we say Parshas Bahar Bukhukhaisai. We include them as one. And the Lashon is not when they're read the same week. But if you learn your Chumash, your Chitas every day, you see it says Sheni in Bahar, and you go a little further, it says Shlishi, Sheni Kishen Mechuborin, when they're attached. And therefore, it's not just the fact that we are reading both the Parshas this week, but they become as one, one entity, and therefore it's only seven Elias plus Maftir. If you can pull that off in a shul or whatever it might be, Chazak is a very big thing itself in its own right. Therefore, many people uh, yearn or try or thrive to buy, to purchase Chazak. The schus of having Chazak. We say the words Chazak, Chazak, when it's Chazak, the Shul, the congregants, when the last words are said in the Pasha, you believe this? When the word, last words are said in the Pasha, we say Chazak. The congregation calls out together, Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazik. 
And then the Balkeda, the Chazan, the Shatz, who is reading the Torah, repeats as well, Chazak, Chazak, Veniz Chazak. And this is something showing and reiterating the greatness and the beauty. Of Teda, that we don't say, Yea, we're finished, Yea, we're done. We call out Chazak, Chazak, strengthening and making it even stronger, not just one time Chazak, but twice Chazak, 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 and then it's Chazak strengthening all together. Computer is gone. So therefore, when we read the Parshas together, although Bahar is not the last Parsha, but Bahar is also represented on the Shabbos, of which we say, Chazak, which we call, the Shabbos itself has the name Shabbos Chazak. And may we take a derive from this, just that, Chazak, the strength. We know, of course, we always connect the beginning of a Chumash and the end of the Chumash. And Baruch Hashem, basically, Tera is Nitzchi, is consistent, is perpetual, and therefore, there's there are definitely other ways, other ways of interpreting the Nas Tchilasim B'Seifim B'Seifim B'Tchilasim, the beginning and the end of every given Chumash, Shivim Panam LaTera. There's seven different explanations how to explain Tera. I apologize to those that have the video this week. They're going to get two little portions. Hopefully it'll be in two. And this doesn't freeze again. And you miss out a little bit, you can pick it up on the audio. The end of Chumash Vayikra ends off with the mitzvah Moshe received Alhar Sinai on the Mount Sinai. And we are learning, as we spoke last week and the week before, and we spoke many years, Shabbos in between Pesach and Shavuos, we learn, we study every week, one Perik of Pirke Avais. The first Perik, the first Mishnah of Pirke Avais starts off, Moshe Kibel Torah Mi Sinai. Moshe received the Torah from Sinai. Now the Rebbe asks, that doesn't grammatically flow. It should say, Moshe Kibbal Teira Al Sinai. Moshe received the Teira on Hal Sinai, on Mount Sinai, not from Mount Sinai. So why therefore is such an expression used? And this is reiterated in this Chumish Vayikra, which begins by Yikra, Moshe, Kaddish Baruch Hu, called to Moshe, 
And we know that the Aleph of Vayikra is written in Aleph Zira, small little Aleph. The last letter of the word Vayikra is small, than the, smaller than the regular letters in the Torah. That being, the reason being, because Meshe Rabbeinu was a tremendous, tremendous Anav. He was a very humble person. And no one was as humble, nobody was as, nobody had humility like Meshe. And when HaKadosh Baruch Hu made reference to the non-Jewish prophets, when he called out to them, he didn't want to show any kind of endearment, it was just a conversation that had to be held, and therefore he called them in the Torah, wherever it says, it says, V'yikar. It says it without an Aleph at the end. V'yikra, and he called to, this is a Lashon of Chshivas. This shows valuable, value, the great value of the persons being called by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So when HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to call to Meisha, he said, Vayikra Meisha. Meisha in his own humbleness said, you know what, it's not nice. I don't want people to think that I'm anything special. I'm not. So let's just write for me Vayikar. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, no, Bishamayfa, not. Your name is, your name is, you are as holy and as special as it gets, and therefore for you I write Vayikra. So Moshe Rabbeinu had to write Vayikra, but he still felt bad, because as humble as he was, and in order to live up to his humility, he wrote the Aleph, a small little letter, as a small letter, so that it should look like Vayikar, like the, humble, the humility that he had the humbleness that he had. And this is how the Pasha finishes off, Al-Har Sinai, on Mount Sinai, which is the epitome of humility. And Vaisha Kibbutayna Mi Sinai, he learned from the mountain Sinai the humility of which Har Sinai accepted the Torah to be written on it. Another thing which we repeat year after year at the end of Chumash Vayikra, we talk about the ten great sages that the Roman government decreed death upon. The Roman emperor saw in the tale it said that for kidnapping and selling a person it's punishable by death. And he asked the sages if a man kidnapped and sold one of his brothers of the children of Israel, what's the law? And they answered, the thief needs to die. Now, if you remember, two weeks ago we spoke about Pirkei The same. We tell the person the crime that they committed, and we ask them, what do you think? How is it punishable? And the person passes decree, their own decree on themselves. And so to here they said that he should die. So the emperor immediately asked them, and who died for the selling of Joseph? 
when the brothers sold Yosef, who died. And therefore he decreed that the ten brothers sold, the ten that sold Yosef, there was never anybody in any generation as holy as, the, as these ten people until today, the ten that he gathered together in front of him. And therefore he said they should die in their stead. And they did indeed die. They were indeed put together to death. The question is though, when Yosef was sold, there wasn't ten. There are only twelve brothers. One of them was being sold. Yosef's younger brother, Binyamin, was still home because he was too young to go out. And Reuben had gone home to see what's going on. So there were only nine. So why kill ten sages? So according to the Medrash, the brothers had agreed not to reveal to Yaakov where Yosef was. And they needed to make sure that Yaakov doesn't find out with his Ruach HaKadosh, with his Holy Spirit. So therefore they asked, they added Hashem into the agreement. And therefore, the emperor saw there were actually ten involved in this selling and hiding away of Yosef. Each one of the, sh- the ten, the Asadiga Malchus, came from a different tribe, a different shavit. So the commentaries ask, Rabbi Akiva was a descendant of converts. His ancestors had no part in this. Why was he killed? And the answer we say is that Rabbi Akiva was punished in the stead of HaKadosh Baruch of Hashem Yisbarach. For not revealing the whereabouts of Yosef. <laughs> and this passage reads, this is a pasuk in Bechukaisai. You know, my wife is very fond of this pshat, this drush. And the word reads as follows. Whoops. <coughs> Second. The Chol Masar is an acronym. Please mute your phone. Mute your Skype. The Yedu Kul Everyone should know. Let it be known to all. Lama Meis Akiva. Why did Akiva die? The reason for his death 
He was a shepherd. The passage continues, Cattle and sheep. And the passage continues, All those who died, or literally went under, but they died, in this word we're using the sense, the translation Yavar is death, Tachas Hashavit, which is under the staff, literally speaking, but here it's talking about representing each Shavit. But, as we said, Rabbi Akiva had no relationship to the tribe, so why was he killed? And therefore we finish off Asiri, the tenth one, which is Rabbi Akiva, Kodesh Lashem is martyred on behalf of Hashem. Why Rabbi Akiva though? What merit did Rabbi Akiva actually have to get this? If we keep this score at home, we can mark up Sachim Chav Beis Amid Beis 22 Sai 2. The Gemara tells us Shimon Hamsuni had a practice of interpreting every ace and S in the Tater. Every time he said the word S in the Tater, he had a translation of what it came to add. But then he found a Pasuk. What is that? S Hashem Elekechotina. Hashem, your God, you shall fear. This point he stopped. Because what addition could you add to fearing of God? Along came Rabbi Akiva and he said, S includes Talmidei Chachamim. Terrorist scholars. So since it was Rabbi Akiva who equated Terrorist scholars to HaKadosh Baruch himself, Therefore, he was selected to represent HaKadosh Baruch. Another Gemara keeping score at home in Brachis, Samach Aleph, Amid Bey, 61, side 2. The Gemara says, while Rabbi Akiva was being put to death, he recited the Shema. And when he reached the word Echod, he expired. A baskel then came down, a voice came from heaven, emanated from heaven. Ashrecha Rabbi Akiva, Shenishmascha Yotza Be'echot. Lucky are you, Rabbi Akiva, that your soul went out with Echot. So therefore, we can also say that this same voice really referred to Rabbi Akiva. Your soul went out on behalf of Echot. And there's only one Echad, which is HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem Echad, Ushmei Echad. Chumash Vayikra. We also talk about Mirchim, we'll talk about something in Mizrach Kaseita, and hopefully something in Pirkei The end of the parsha, or actually the beginning of this parsha, 
In the chukosai teilechu, if you will go in my chukim, generally, generally, the Torah is divided into three parts: edus, chukim, umishpatim. And we've explained it many, many times: edus being the mitzvahs that give testimony to any given hap- historical historical action. Or happening in the Jewish nation. Chukim mitzvahs that we don't understand, the Mishpatim mitzvahs that are commonsensical. Venasati Gishmechim Bitom. Terah tells us if you will go in the way of the Teda, I will give the rain in the proper time. <coughs> so generally the main stay part of this parsha is dedicated to reward and punishment. HaKadosh Baruch Hu guarantees us Shefa Shalteva Bracha abundance of good and of blessing for keeping Torah mitzvahs. And then the opposite of Chas one doesn't. In the reward of mitzvahs, we see a strong emphasis on the, phys- in the physical realm, gisha- rain, parnosa, Victory in battles, not being affected by wild animals and plagues, and murder, killer bees, peace and tranquility, etc. This is Bex to ask. The main part of reward. And value of the good level of spirituality, which is the true goodness, not the not the physical rewards. Whereas the Chazal tell us in the third mission of the first Pedic Piki of us. Don't be like servants who serve God, serve their master in order to get reward. But rather do it because this is what God told you to do. And out of love of God and fear of God. So why therefore the stress, the emphasis on the rewards merited and given to us for doing mitzvahs the way we should be. And even more so, the question gets even more involved. The beautiful world that we are anticipating in the time of Mashiach 
in the time of Mashiach, again, a Gemara, if you keep your score at home, on Shabbos, Taflam at the bottom of the second side. Where it says, In the future, the trees will give fruit every day. Bear fruit every day. Even non-fruit trees will bear fruit. And the tree itself will taste like the fruit. (coughs) And many other beautiful, beautiful rewards that we will have in the time of Mashiach. But at that time, when Mashiach comes, godliness will be revealed at the highest level. The Ramam says even, All the people will want to do is to know God. And if evil call Amadanim, Yubachinus Ofor, and all the rewards and all these great beautiful things will be like like dust dust, like dirt. In this spiritual realm, this spiritual level which we will achieve, physical reward will mean nothing to us. It will leave us time to sit and study Torah and do mitzvahs. Because we will not have to work. We will not have to earn. Everything will be given to us on a silver platter. In that case, why is it though, if the mainstay idea of Allah is to know and to learn God and to become one with God and to connect with God, why is the Torah emphasizing to such extent the wonderful rewards that we will have physically. But the truth is that the physical mundane world, the beautiful things that one has, is really emphasizing how great Torah is. Torah, as we know, Again, a Gemara, if you keep your score at home, Baruchas, Samachalaf Hamid Bey says, Chayecha Verech Yamecha, your life and your longevity. And the explanation to that simply is, Tera is the essence of our life, the life of each and every Jew. So the entire world will be involved around that. What will be the right way to be the chef of Taylor? And this, therefore, will be the flowing of Taylor, will therefore bring about the flowing of everything else that we have. All the physical properties that we can own. Today, the person achieves this, achieves everything that he does with great toil. And it takes a a long time 
until a person sees actual fruit being born from his toil, from his work. For now, the physical world is not a vessel for spirituality of Teda and Mitzvahs. Not one that we see with the, with the naked eye. When the Geula will come about, when the redemption and the world will become refined, <coughs> will be a vessel for flowing spirituality, then the Shefa Hatera will come and mix us. All boundaries, all physical realms. And the fact is, the reward on Torah Mitzvah comes about Tafka through the physical creation. And Torah testifies that Torah is the life lifeline that we exist on. And just as a person, when he is awakened and he is brought to his attention or he brings to his own attention the value of his own life a great simcha doesn't stay only in his spiritual ideas in life it goes throughout his entire body he feels and anticipates his joy throughout even the feet dance because of the joy that he achieves. And when they dance, they raise up the entire body. This is what Teda does. It's Chayecho. It brings about Shefa Bracha, even in the physical things. So when Jews go in the way of Teda Mitzvah's they bring about plentifulness of the blessings in all boundaries to the actual physical realm. And this full blessing of strength, of Teda, come about in the time of the redemption. And therefore the Teda brings to us Shefa, Gashmi, Mufla, just as our sages depicted. The story is told of the Balshem HaKadosh. He was traveling in a forest with his students and they arrived at a little hut, decrepit. But it looked like it was once more than just a hut. And the Balshem sent his Talmidim inside and said, Please, tell them I need to eat something. I'm famished. And they came in and they said, Our master asked, please, if you can give him some food. And she said, I have but a hard piece of bread and a small piece of cheese. And I am saving this for my husband, who's out in the forest chopping wood, working so hard from early morning He's going to come home starving, exhausted. I'm saving this bread for him. 
And they said, but our master is pleading with you, please. He can't, he's fainting. And again she said, I can't let down my husband, I can't disappoint him. But the chassidim were persistent. And they went on and on until she acquiesced. And she gave them a piece of bread and cheese. After the Baal Shem Tov ate this, he went back, he told us to me to go back and tell her he's very, very tired. Very tired. And again, she said, I only have a little bit of straw which I have prepared for my husband to rest on. He will have nowhere to sleep if we take this from him. But the Washington insisted, he can't, his bones are weary, he's hurting, he needs to rest. So the Chassidim brought the Washington inside, and the woman had no choice but to give him the straw. A little later, the husband arrives home. And he asks, is there anything to eat? And the wife says, I had a piece of bread and cheese for you. But this man came, must have been a very holy, special man. And he begged and pleaded that I give it to him. Oh, he says, there's nothing to eat. No. All right, I guess I'll go to sleep. I'm so tired. And she says, ah, not a good idea. What does that mean? This is a few pieces of straw that I had for you to sleep on. He took that too. He was very tired. And he steps outside into the forest. He raises his hands and his head to God and he says, I'm deplete. I have nothing. I have nothing. How am I supposed to continue like this? How am I supposed to go on? This is not humanly possible. Please, Rebunish the Father in Heaven, please send me what I need. Fast forward a few months, and the Vashemta returns to the same spot. No longer a rickety hut, a beautiful little house. And they knock at the door and the Chambasidim recognize the husband. Now an elegant garment. The house is bedecked. He invites them in, please come in. Join us. And by the set table, the Vashemta says to the man, (coughs) Makara. What happened? The man says, I'll tell you what happened. I hit rock bottom. I hit rock bottom. I had nothing. Nothing. What I do? I went outside and I cried. The next day, two days later, there's a knock on the door. And it's the butler of the parrots the lord the lord of the area and the butler 
said the Paritz wants wine. He knows he heard you were once a wine, wine merchant and he needs wine. Man says, I haven't sold wine in ages. What are you talking about? He says, don't give us stories. We know that you sold wine once upon a time and they said the Paritz wants your wine and only your wine. No, let's look He says, I'll show you. And he takes him downstairs to what used to be the wine cellar. And he shows him one barrel after the other is empty. But the butler is persistent and he says, I want to see every barrel. And he comes to the last barrel, there's a half a barrel of wine. He says, Okay, I'll take this. You can't do that. This is what I have for Kiddush and for Abdullah. It's all I have left. I can't give it to you. But says, do me a favor. The butler says, do me a favor. Give me one cup. What are you doing? How are you going to carry one? So he took an empty barrel. He put in one cup of wine. And he filled it with water. Maybe it'll taste like something. And he gave it to the butler. He paid an exorbitant price for it. The butler came back the next day. Said the pilot is making a wedding. And he will not take anywhere else wine except for by you. He wants a guzma of wine from you. Barrels and barrels. So once again the man did the same. He put a cup of wine in each barrel and filled it up with water. And it was sold to the Paritz, and he made a tremendous profit, obviously. And once again, got back into his wine business. <coughs> People came from wide and far and wide, purchasing wine from him. And Baruch Hashem, today he's back on his feet. Bravo! Beautiful, beautiful story. Hashem says, "Let me tell you my story." The Maila up above. In the heavenly courts, it was written that you were to be a very wealthy man. However, one stipulation you needed to ask for it. And if you didn't ask, you're not getting it. So when you were selling wine, you definitely didn't have a reason to ask. And when you were finally deduced, reduced to poverty, chopping wood, barely earning a few pennies, you still said, thank you for what I have. You didn't ask. And it was coming to a time now where the Sultan got a little bit overzealous here. And the Sultan came to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and said he's not asking. Why him? Let's give it to somebody else. They were ready to give away your wealth to somebody else. When I came 
and I saw this happening, I came to you and I took away everything you had, so that you would have no choice but to go out and ask. And lo and behold, you did. You went out and you asked the Rebbeinah Shalom, you can't anymore. And you davened for something to God to give you what you need. And the wealth which was written and inscribed for you was showered upon you. So we see, therefore, it's all from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and it's all the asking that's within us and there are times we think and we take for granted and we say I have what I need I don't want anymore I don't need anymore I'm happy, I'm satisfied which is good, which is important but we may not be complacent and just like a person is never complacent with the mundane physical things in the world, one may never be complacent with their spiritual. One must apply themselves to thrive and to search and to try to rise above and to see to it that they have more and more physically and spiritually. And may we all be blessed with abundances of both. And therefore, if you follow, follow my statutes and observe my commandments, and you perform them, that's how the Pasha begins. Rashi wonders what kind of phrases in you follow my statutes. One might assume it refers simply to the way a person observes mitzvahs. But then continue when you hear it says, You observe my commandments. So the repetition wouldn't work. So what's the meaning of Rashi therefore says to toil in the study of Torah. Not enough just to study Torah but to toil in it and to put ourselves into it to dedicate time, effort, strength And this we see is supported by the verse where the Torah says, <coughs> My statutes. And we said before, this Eidus Chukim and Mishpatim. Chok. In reference to mitzvahs that have no logical explanation. If I do a mitzvah, keep Pesach. Because the Jews left Egypt. I keep Shavuos because the Jews received the Torah on Sinai. I even sit in a freezing cold sukkah or a boiling hot sukkah because the Jews traveled in sukkahs. 
connecting to it. I give my child a bris mila on the eighth day, because so did Avram. He had a bris for his son on the eighth day. And the same with any other of the mitzvahs, putting on tefillin, I'm tying, binding myself to God. You can relate to it. You can connect to it. And therefore, you can do it. It's not really... It doesn't get to you so much. However, Chukim, which we don't understand the reason for it. We don't understand what it's all about. It takes much more strength. We need to naturally... It's, it's toilsome. Toilsome but on an emotional level. And it's great sacrifice for the person, the logical person, to act in a manner that defies rationality and has no explanation to it. So therefore the word chok is actually synonymous to the concept of difficulty, challenge. Here it's referring to terror study. Rashi understands therefore that on the terror study is reference to not just studying Tana regularly, but challenging, toiling, devoting, dedicating to study of Tana. Not to derive satisfaction, oh, look what I just did, not to derive satisfaction, look how much I know, I'm massing Tana. To doing it for the sake of Hashem. The Chukai Lechu. Not just study Tera, but study Tera and toil in it. You might have said to say that the Medalit of the Beis can be scored home 34, Saitum, discusses the journey of the Meraglim, the spies as they entered Israel, how they spoke, what they spoke, what their intentions, how they what they were saying. And ultimately it reverts to the concept of Lashon Hara. Where they literally spoke Lashon Hara on earth. So. <coughs> Lashon Hara can be thought as well. It doesn't only have to be thought, spoken. You don't get punished for actually thinking it, but you get punished for talking it. And they tell the story of a couple that got engaged. Neither of them were young. And they're both finally happy to see and find their bashert. A true story. And a relative of the Kala knew the Chosen from years back. And he goes over to her and says to her, that's what you're settling for. You have any idea what he did? And he starts telling him all the things. Immediately the collar broke off like one of the Sunday engagement. Till, to, till today this fellow is a Talmud Chacham and learned guy. He's in his 40s already but never was not married. There he was standing ready to settle his life. To turn everything around. From this little bit of Lashon Hara everything was taken away and destroyed.
So this, the Yomara tells us, the Lashon Hara, which they brought about, and we all know the destruction that caused, and the havoc that caused by the spies when they returned in the 40 years in the desert that ensued thereafter. I'll take um, just a moment to go back to Pirkei Avos a little bit. So I know we did it. This week is chapter 5, Perikei. And we're looking at Mission of Vav, Mission 6. So, the ten things created on Erev Shabbos at twilight. Benashmash is a very, very interesting time. After sunset, before nightfall. It's not day, it's not night. And therefore, since a boy who is born on Shabbos may have his bris on Shabbos, but if a boy is born Friday ben Ashmoshes or Shabbos ben Ashmoshes, he cannot have his bris on Shabbos. Because it's twilight, it's not Friday, it's not Shabbos, and therefore it's not determinable enough to make the bris on Shabbos. So, on the sixth day of creation by twilight, God created ten things. Piharetz, the mouth of the opening of the earth, which ultimately swallows Kerach. And if you go to Krakow, you'll find somebody else there too. Piabeir, mouth of the well that gave water in the desert for 40 years. Piaosa, in the mouth of the donkey that spoke to Bilam. Hakeshes, the rainbow. Vahamon, the mono that fell in the, in the desert. Vahamate and the famous staff that Moshe Rabbeinu used. Vahashamir and the worm. The Shamir worm, which was used to split stones for the Beis Hamidish that were not allowed to be cut with by metal, but could not be hewn by metal. Therefore, they had to have the special worm do it. Haksav Vehamichtav, the writing, second tablets, and the inscription on the first tablets. Vehaluchas and the tablets themselves. Vehashemrim, some say even Afkibrim, Mishamesh Rabbeinu, also the grave of Mesh Rabbeinu, Eilish Avramavinu, the ram by Avramavinu. The Yeshemrim and also the people that say, Afmazikin Rasvas, Bitzvas Hasuya. And also the spirits of destruction, as well as the original tongue that was used to take things out of fire. The Mishnah is giving us a lifelong lesson for today in our age. Bein Hashemoshes, as we say, is between Friday and Shabbos. Between the 6th and the 7th day. 
This is a special relevance to today's day and age. Each day it's brought down has a parallel with one millennia. And therefore we now find ourselves in the seventh millennia. We find ourselves entering to the seventh. We're on Friday, we're finishing the sixth. We're on the twilight of Friday. And just as the miraculous entities which completed the ultimate creation of the world as a whole were created at this time, we too are living in a time of miracles in which perfection can be granted to all existence. And the Mishnah therefore is giving us a life lesson how the importance of using and utilizing every moment the twilight, the last moments before the commencement of Shabbos was used to enhance the totality of the world. And similarly, we have the potential now to use every moment granted to us to influence and improve the environment of the world as a whole. The luchas, the tablets, the inscription of the first and the second. The deepest possible connection between Torah and man, the Luchas. The letters of the Ten Commandments, which were hewn into the stones themselves, by God. And when the letters of the Torah scroll are written on a scroll with ink and parchment, as we know also from the story of Seta, where it gets erased for the drink of the Seta, when it's re- written ink on parchment, it doesn't become an integral, an integral part of the parchment itself. Whereas by the tablets, by the first luchas, they were engraved, they were hewn within it, thereby becoming one with the stone. <coughs> and this complete unity reflects one which is entirely united with the Torah. A person in this state does not see Torah as a separate entity, but rather, they and Torah are one. And he studies those laws, he knows the laws that he must follow, whose they are and where they are coming from. And this is part and parcel of his own being. He and the Torah form a single whole. So just as these luchas and their inscription were created Friday between twi- on twilight, every single-minded commitment to Torah is relevant in this present age. <coughs> Moments before twilight, preceding the day which is Shabbos, Shabbos, the time of Mashiach, we characterize such a unified mindset and this attitude both anticipates and precipitates its coming. Tell a story, the olden days, 
primitive times practically. There were different things people owned or didn't own. There's one fellow who had gone to the, to the big city. And in the big city, he bought himself a clock. This was very novel, very precious. He had a clock. Everybody knew he had a clock and it told him the time. One fellow said he wanted to get a clock. But he started to think about it. He said, if I get a clock, it tells me the time of the day. What happens if I'm hungry for lunch? But it's not 12 o'clock yet. I'll have to sit and stare at the clock and wait for the 10, 12. I'll go off my mind. What happens in a winter night where I fall, I'm very, very tired already at 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, I want to go to sleep before 10. But it's not 10 yet, I can't go to sleep. The clock is not telling me I can go to sleep. Oh, it's terrible, this clock. I'm not getting a clock. Not only that, I'm going to warn my friend. And he goes to his friend, he says, I feel so bad for you. You have a clock. He says, what's wrong? What do you mean? If you get hungry lunchtime, but it's not lunchtime on the clock, you can't eat. If you get tired in the evening and it's not the bedtime, you can't sleep. How you could you possibly exist? <laughs> he says. He laughs and says, My friend, when I am hungry for lunch and that clock's not telling me it's twelve o'clock, I take my finger and I make it twelve o'clock and I eat lunch. When I'm tired at night and it doesn't say 10 o'clock, I take my finger and I make it 10 o'clock. So I go to sleep and I eat when I'm ready to. The clock is not going to dictate my life. But now, we are we are now on the clock. As we said, in the end, the twilight, the last moments of Golos, literally just holding on to the last breaths of this horrific, horrific exile with a bated breath anticipating any second the blast of the Shaykh of Mashiach which will take us out of Golos and we'll all cry out together Chazak, Chazak and this Chazek Shabbos to all.